Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They are experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're so pleased to welcome Leanne Shaw. Leanne is a senior instructional technologist at the College of Veterinary Medicine here at Purdue University. So welcome, and thank you for joining us here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, what do we start with? What's a senior technology, uh, senior, sure. now what? Instructional technologist. Yeah. <laughs> all of that, yeah. That's all that, all that. <laughs> So I am the diagnostic imaging and dentistry and all the other instructional technologists at the College of Vet Med. And with that, I am an RVT, a registered veterinary nurse or a veterinary technician. We are in the middle of a title change. Um, so I am registered with the state of Indiana as a veterinary nurse, and so we assist the DVMs, or the doctors of veterinary medicine, in all of their procedures. So we're trained in anything from anesthesia to phlebotomy to radiography, all the way to teaching, to laboratory animal, and we kind of do it all. So in human medicine, you would be specified, like you would be a phlebotomist, you would be a CNA, you'd be an RN. We work in ICU, we work in medicine, um, we cover it all, large animals, small, exotics, all the way through. And so I've been teaching, this is my 15th year teaching, and my specialty is radiology. Radiology is kind of in my passion since I was a student. Um, I got a student working job position in radiology and um, just fell in love with it. I really like the way that we have a finished product at the end and we get to see things that normally you can't see. So that's mm -hmm. the, the cool part. So I kind of got to be known as the skeleton crew. Literally, literally <laughs> a skeleton, you know, yeah, just right. because everything is bones now, right? So mm -hmm. it's fun. And there's a lot of different modalities in radiology. So. It, I'm never bored. I'm always learning something new, and technology is always advancing our radiology program. So, so I'm going to ask because I okay, so radiology, mm -hmm. and that makes me think okay, X-rays. Yes. Is that is it just is it just X-rays? Well, it's more than X-rays now, okay. but originally it was yes. So we started off with X-rays and radiographs is typically physically the tangible part that we can see and hold and view. Now that is digital or digital, digital. <laughs> it's digital, and so that's on the computer screen now. So we can send them. Um, they have a special um, package that we send them as DICOM images so that they can't be edited. So that's a medical package. So unlike a JPEG, we can change an alter or a PDF. We have a DICOM image, and then you have to have a special DICOM reader to convert and like shared medical records. So that also holds us by the state laws and regulations of HIPAA and privacy. And then we have CT, which also uses x-rays, but it, we can then get a 3D image of the patient. And so our x-ray isn't just coming from top to bottom. It is now going around the patient, and the patient is going in on a couch or a table. Then we also have um, fluoroscopy, which also uses x-rays, and that is kind of what I consider a fluoroscopy as a movie. So it's live. We call that live action, if anyone's referred to the Turtle Man. He was a big show, right? So it's live, and we pump a lot more x-rays in in a millisecond and we get converted on a TV screen so we get a little video so we can watch a dog swallow. Oftentimes we use it for diagnosis of like a tracheal collapse, a swallowing defect, or even some sort of GI or abdominal issues that we're having. Then 
as technology has advanced, we have gotten into MRI and nuclear imaging. So MRI uses a magnet, realigning the hydrogen molecules in our body to get our image with a supercomputer aid. And then nuclear imaging is not x-rays, it's actually gamma radiation, so radioisotopes. So we do use that a lot. Um, it doesn't give us a specific diagnosis, it just localizes the area that we need. We use it a lot in horses because as we know, our animals, our patients do not talk. They cannot say, my knee hurts when I walk in. And so it's a long guessing game. It allows us to localize that area of interest by the radioisotope by injecting that patient with a radioisotope with a tracer on it. And that tracer then goes to active uptake or healing. And then we can localize that area and then go from there for further diagnostics. And the last one that we use very often in human medicine is really referred to that is ultrasound. So that is sound waves and sound waves are not invasive at this time. We do wonder if there's some sort of heat component to the sound waves, but at this time, we consider them non-invasive. Again, getting a live picture. Mm -hmm. So those are all the modalities we use, and they're similar in human as they are in veterinary medicine. It, now, I hear a, a CT scan, but what is that using? So that is using x-rays, computer That's tomography. x-ray also? CT is x-rays, MR, magnetic renaissance, which looks similar, is the magnet. So that realigns the hydrogen molecules, but CT is also x-rays. Okay. Just the x-ray tube is turning around the patient, where if we do a still film, it's just one direction, whether it's shooting across the table or top to bottom. And so I, I think one of the things that we talked about that we were going to talk about was mm -hmm. how these things actually work then. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. It, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm not making that up in my head, nope. am I? No. So you want to talk about x-rays? Yeah. Yes, yes. I do. Yeah. Because I'm really curious to know how this actually works, especially now, because I know it used to have those big films. Yes. Those big old things, but it, right. I never see those anymore. I brought some. And you, oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned that it's all digital now. Yeah, so I, it, it those films have gone away. They have gone away. Yeah. And sadly, I can't even purchase them for teaching barely anymore. So oh, wow. supply and demand, you know, used mm -hmm. to be really high in teaching and the supplies that we get. And now that the human world has converted all, to all digital, the mm -hmm. veterinary world is a little bit behind. We're about 60% all digital. Mm -hmm. It's becoming more affordable um, because we don't have to keep the chemicals for processing those films. Um, mm -hmm. There is a fixer, a developer, an asset and a base. And so utilizing all of that does create some waste and some chemical waste and maintaining more equipment. So converting to digital is actually more convenient. It's more efficient and it lowers our dose. So when you think about x-rays, oh. there is a dose component of ionizing radiation, right? Mm -hmm. So x-rays are kind of part of that electromagnetic spectrum, but they're different. So they're radio waves, but they're different because they have that shorter wavelength. And so that really short wavelength allows them to penetrate through objects that radio waves cannot. They can penetrate some through some objects. So if you get out your cell phone, you check your email, your message, that uses radio waves typically, right? Or mm -hmm. microwaves, whichever one you're working on, right? But when it comes to x-rays, that part of that electric magnetic spectrum or further at the end, and we have those really short wavelengths. And those really short wavelengths cannot be confined. And they can pass through or penetrate through most all objects. They haven't really found an object that they don't pass through. They are slowed by more dense objects. So as our atomic number gets higher, they are slowed down, but they're not always 
always stopped and they can't be confined um, by a lens. So like photographs can be confined by a lens, yeah. radio waves can be defined, x-rays cannot be confined. They always travel in straight lines and their energy has to be used up or dissipated before they are considered non-ionizing, ionizing causing change when they interact. So with the energy bouncing off, I always use the analogy for my veterinary nursing students of a super bouncy ball is that first production of x-rays, that first hit is the most powerful, right? And then all the energy has to be dissipated or used up. And so we get what I dubbed as lazy x-rays or scatter. And scatter is the most dangerous because those x-ray wavelengths are slowed down. So when we interact with matter as x-rays, we can pass through and cause no harm. We can pass through and cause repairable damage, or unfortunately, we can cause that ionizing unrepairable damage. So that gets to the DNA mutation of our cells. And that's the part that we're most worried about. So we only use x-rays when diagnostically or medically necessary. It's nothing that we do for fun. But ironically, when x-rays were first discovered, it was a fun thing. So William Conrad Rankin, and some people say Rottenge, but um, he discovered x-rays in 1895, so that's way many, many wow. moons ago. And it was, it was an accidental crux tube accident. So he was working on a crux tube in his laboratory and he saw some glowing and he tried to wrap it in some cardboard and it kept glowing and glowing across the room. So we know that x-rays interact with fluorescence, but they can't be confined, right? And so he kept working on that and he just briefly dubbed them as x-rays as an unknown ray, oh, uh, but it took off it just stuck. and it stayed, right? So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and it stayed. And that was kind of right around the time Madame Curry was working with fluorescence and other things. And um, he just kept going with this, something's happening here. What? Why is this glowing? And he was really not intentionally trying to find these. And he did go on to win the first Nobel Prize. So it's pretty cool that, you know, our king of x-rays was the first Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. So we like that. Um, but just in discovering of them, we learned that we didn't know much about the safety or the ionizing part of it and the scatter. And so a lot of things went a little bit mania is what they dubbed it as x-ray mania. Like we use them for entertainment purposes before medical purposes, sure. before we realized and it took us about 20 years to catch up of there is some problem here. So currently we know that we need to wear our safety. So we call it personal protective equipment when we are within six to eight feet, each state law varies um, depending on if you have a high output or a low output tube. Mm -hmm. And when we are within that, the the dissipation of the scatter doesn't occur quite yet, so that's when we get that cell mutation or cell damage. Where if we are beyond that, the dissipation is so low that we're not causing cell damage at that time. But if we're within that, we wear our personal protective equipment. So each state law varies. Some are a little more lax than others, but the golden standard is 0.5 millimeter lead. So that allows us to slow down or absorb majority of the scatter. Mm -hmm. Lead will not protect us from the primary beam. So that super bouncy ball, that initial hit, because mm -hmm. it's too powerful, right? Oh. But the scatter, the lazy x-rays can protect us. We can be protected by the PPEs. So 0.5 millimeters of lead. And then the gold standard is a lead thyroid shield. So we protect the areas of multiple reproducing cells in our body. An apron that covers our trunk um, should go down to our knees and down our sides. 
front and back only if our backs to the primary beam. So in equine medicine, a lot of times we have to position ourselves to be safe around the large animals. So our backs will be to the beam or we'll be squatting down near their legs. So we wear front and backside lead and then lead gloves if we're in front of the beam. So if we're running the camera or the tube head, we don't need the lead gloves. But if we are within, you know, the front of the primary beam, we'll wear lead gloves and those should protect on both sides. Okay. If you're in um, with a CT scan, so perhaps you're doing anesthesia and you need to breathe for your patient, something's going awry, or if you're in a fluoroscopy, so sometimes someone needs to feed the contrast to the patient so that it has higher density so we can see the x-rays and the um, anatomy a little bit more, then we'll wear lead goggles too. Oh, really? So yeah, and initially none of this was known. So a lot of people died, um, especially assistants within the labs of cancer. Um, Professor Rankin's wife did die of hand cancer and she got the first x-ray done was her hand. So you'll see like a old time x-ray with a big ring that is her hand and it took her 15 minutes to sit there still for them to produce that. Currently we can take an x-ray in a millisecond. So it's kind of interesting to not move. Like I could never imagine. I have a hard time getting my dogs and cats, my patients not to move. (laughs) Right. Currently in a millisecond, but 15 minutes. Breathe deep and don't move. So yeah. See, and that's something I had not thought because I know when yeah. it, when I even like the dental things, right. stuff, uh-huh. whenever I get any kind of X-ray thing, mm-hmm. the technician is out of the room. Yes. And so, but you can't do that with the no. animal. Yeah. You can't yeah. say like, "Stay there, I'll be right back." Can you? Oh, we can. <laughs> so we're working towards a hands-free initiative, and this is something that we've started um, training our dogs at a young age. So training them to be comfortable on the table and alternative restraints. So we'll use sandbags, we'll use troughs, we use a lot of tape. We take them to the edge of the table. Um, Sometimes we'll use positioning ropes, different positioning aids, um, wedges to stack them up. And if they're calm enough, it can happen. If they're sedated, it absolutely will happen. Because we have practiced by Alara as low as reasonably achievable. And so we always worry about our dose as an occupational personnel because we're exposed to radio waves outside of here. Our cell phones, when we're walking, naturally UV rays are right next to x-rays, right? So we protect ourselves from UV rays. So how do you guys protect yourself from the sun? Uh, Like sunscreen or, you know, maybe some kind of fabric or something. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. sunblock, UV rays blocking. Yeah. Yeah. So with radiology, we have to block ourselves even more. So that's where we wear a PPE or we try not to be involved at all. So if it takes two people to restrain one patient and I can restrain the back half with a sandbag, I save that person 100% of their dose or the team 50% of their dose. And we do wear dosimetry badges. I did bring mine. It's a piece of film and it tells me how much scatter I've been exposed to. And typically those are collected every quarter. So for a year, I can be exposed to five REM so those are Rankin equivalent man, or if you're doing sieverts, it's, you know, the 10 sieverts, right? So 50 sieverts. And so in my milli sieverts, I get exposed to a lot of background scatter everywhere else. So my dose as a working occupational is about one sixth of my total dose. And that doesn't take into account if if I need dental x-rays once a year when I go to the dentist, or if I perhaps need a CT scan, or something happens to me and they need to do a contrast study or anything else that I'm exposed to. So we really strictly monitor our working occupational personnel to guarantee that we're below that five rem and ensure that we are being safe. And if we're not, um, you know, we have to take a timeout and kind of reevaluate our plan. Like, are we not using a Lara? Are we not, you know, reducing our time, distance and shielding? 
maybe we are in the room too often, so we need to work a little bit more with hands-free alternative restraint. And so we really preach that to our students as they go out to graduate because it's very easy. X-rays are invisible. We can't yeah. see them. Yeah. Right. So we don't really know what we're being exposed to. So I always use the joke that I want a glitter balloon at the top of the ceiling. So after I hit my rotor and my X-rays are released, that glitter comes out and everyone knows that they've been exposed, right? Um, but that hasn't <laughs> happened yet. So we just think about the process of we're converting, you know, electrons into x-rays in the tube head every time and they have to be released and when they're released that's when we're getting exposed to that so diagnostic purpose for our patient but not for us mm -hmm. and yeah we cannot leave the room especially if we have a horse yeah. there's someone restraining that horse so there's someone holding that lead rope on top of someone holding the you know whatever we're recording the x-rays with right. so the recording service whether it's a computerized panel a digital panel or a film and screen panel it's a lot. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I, I still have trouble getting past the taping down because I just imagine yes. someone take, trying to duct tape my cap down. Oh, no. <laughs> Not like that. Oh, okay. a lot of stress. But yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, we, we train them. We train them, you know, to get used to that. And so there are situations where it works. Um, you'd be surprised at how many times it does work. Um, there are situations in an emergency where it will not work. Mm -hmm. And so just, you know, if you're on a team, you have to, it is illegal for someone's job to be just to restrain for x-rays. So oh. you have to take turns. You have to rotate. Well, so the entire the team has to be, yep. The entire oh, team wow. has to be trained. Anyone under the age of 18 cannot be uh, occupational working personnel that is exposed to x-rays. Oh, wow. So our bodies are growing and changing. Our cells are not fully developed and they're more sensitive to that ionizing radiation there. It's, uh, I never thought about yeah. that being a hazard yep. in working with animals is mm -hmm. all of a sudden overexposure. Yeah. How do you, you say you track it, you keep track of that. Yes. Yeah. How do you know? How do you keep track? Are you estimating? You know, oh, probably right. this much. I mean, how do you know? So we wear a dosimetry badge, and that dosimetry badge, and I brought mine, it's on my dinosaur lead there, it is made of radiography film. So old school film that, you know, we used to hold up. It has a little film, and it's sensitive on a wedge scale. And so the more dose you get, the more intense your badge color changes. And so they run those through a reader. So there's radiation um, dosimetry companies, so whichever one your practice works for. Mm -hmm. And it monitors per, per facility. So I could not take my dosimetry badge to my second job where I work at a primary care practice on the weekends in my town because that dose then is equivalent to my primary job, which is Purdue University. Mm -hmm. So it's per facility, and it goes through our identification number of our social security, right? Okay. And so it's reported just to you and your um, place of employment mm -hmm. of what your dose is for that quarter. So they typically read it every quarter. Um, some places will go biannually, but every quarter is more accurate. Mm -hmm. And then when that's read, I personally have to add up my dose for all the facilities I've been at. So if I'm working at so-and-so's practice in, you know, Attica, Indiana, then we want to make sure that I add that dose to my Purdue dose to get my average yearly dose. And it needs to stay below 5 rem. If it's anywhere close to that, then I need to take a time out and have to reevaluate with the state of how can I lower my dose, which is typically time, distance, and shielding. So we want the shortest time us exposed to scatter radiation and the shortest release of x-rays for the patient. I want the maximum distance between me and the primary beam and then shielding. I want to make sure I'm wearing my PPE. It fits me appropriately and I have all of it that's available to me. So not just wearing the apron, um, not with my shoulder out. If my back's to the primary beam, I want to make sure I have front and back lid on. 
my thyroid fits appropriately so it goes from below my chin and meets to my lead on my apron. So if there's like a big gap, that could be a higher dose. And those dose symmetry badges are worn on the outside of the lead. So it tells me how much radiation has been exposed to my lead. Okay. It doesn't take an account of how much the lead has slowed down. Now, if I am an expecting mother, I can still be in there and be exposed to scatter radiation, except for that first trimester is most important. And then we wear wraparound lead, so double-sided, so tops and it's a skirt. And then we get a dosimetry badge for our fetus and we wear that under the lead. And that will tell us how much of radiation has been passed through the lead even as, if it's the 0.5 millimeters, some of it can still get through there, so we know what the dose to the fetus is. Okay. And so you don't have to actually remove yourself from your job, you can continue working. You know, they, mm -hmm. they tell you to kind of pause at that pre-implantation or that first trimester, but afterwards it's actually found to be safe. And oh, wow. many human workers in radiology continue working in their job if they work in a fluoroscopy cath lab or if they run CT or MR. You know, a lot of times they can get out of the room a little bit more than vet med, but it is it is safe enough that we can continue to work. Is, is that five rem? Is that per quarter or per year? year? For the that's year. Our annual okay. dose. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's a, I'm assuming it's not like from January 1st, January 1st, it's ongoing. Yeah, like it, a 24 months. last 12 months. months. Oh, or, or sorry, 12. Yeah. Yeah. So there's 12 in my year. Yes. I, I mean, I'm not yes. judging. A 12 month <laughs> calendar, yes. All right. yes. So, all right, so I know like in, of course, dentists and the hospital stuff, when they leave the room, Yes. And I've seen so many times with a dentist where they put it on and it looks like the, the tech is just stepped right outside the door. Mm -hmm. um, do they use like lead paint or something in there? Nope, so that's that distance. So remember I said you have to be about mm -hmm. six to eight feet depending on what kind of tube head. So your dentist tube head would be a low output machine. So it doesn't release a really high voltage of electrons. So we're not getting a, a really strong quantity or force of x-rays coming out. So that's more of that six feet distance. So they just have to be six feet away because at six feet, we think of that super bouncy ball, that initial hit is going to hit you as the patient and then the scatter is going to bounce out until the bouncy ball stops bouncing, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're that far away, we make the assumption that that distance has protected us. And then they immediately come back in because it's released in milliseconds, right? So they mm -hmm. beep, come back in, move it over, Typically, yeah. they're looking at the screen, right? In olden days, or if you go to my dentist in rural Indiana, we still hand dip films, right? And oh. so hand dipping films is recording the x-rays on silver halide crystals in radiographic film. And that's what kind of holds that energy. And so the the way that we read x-rays is based on the density of the area that we're going through. So we call it the area of interest. So the higher the density, the more x-rays are absorbed and they appear white or radiopaque. When we have a lower density, less x-rays are absorbed and they kind of pass right through and they appear black or radiolucent. And so our medical DBMs or doctors, depending on who we're working for, can read them based on those different opacities. And so a higher atomic number, the more we call them little x-ray robbers. So they're the pirates. So they pirate the x-rays and they keep the x-rays within them. So that's where we worry about the x-rays being stuck within our bones. Oh. So high density bone, your oh. teeth, they actually keep the x-rays because that's a high density, right? They pass through in maybe your soft tissue of your tongue or like your buckle or your cheek folds, mm -hmm. right? Um, but when we look at that, we compare the different opacities of the two. So high density versus low density. So we call that contrast. So we look for that contrast. Okay. 
is I'm thinking when I've seen them, I know the, the bone turns white. Yes. Stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it, in my head, I'm like, oh, okay, it's just can't go through that bone. But it There's is the going it's, through it's the bone, right? It's going through, but some of it's stain and some of it's going majority of stain, right? So the denser the something density. is, the more absorbance it yep. has, so it's yeah. absorbing more. Now, does that, when the x-rays are absorbed, over time, does that, you said it that energy tr then transfers, and does it stay it in it? Like, do be, I still have x-rays? It has to be it? dissipated, okay, right? It's dissipated. So if it's yeah. stuck within your bone, then it kind of does this vibration. So there is that heat component, that ionizing damage, where okay. it releases that heat. It has to vibrate until all of its energy is dissipated or okay. used up. So, then so you don't still have x-rays in your bone, but you did for quite a millisecond post your exposure. Oh, and that's what yeah. you're saying, milliseconds. Mm -hmm. So, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So a lot happens in a very short time. Yes, and it's all invisible. Yeah. You know, with right. a flashlight, we can shine a light and we know exactly where we're directing it. Yeah. That is not true with x-rays. Um, so what we have developed over time, you know, when William kind of discovered x-rays, he didn't have this, but as electricity came and electricity came in houses and came more common, mm -hmm. uh, we fit a collimator on the bottom of our tube head. So our tube head is where the x-ray production happens. So okay. we have a cathode, which is negatively charged, and an anode, which is positively charged. Mm -hmm. So when we apply a current to that, the cathode has just kind of a little focusing cup at the bottom of it with a tungsten filament. Tungsten because it's a really high melting point because there's 99% heat and 1% production of x-rays. So this is a very, very, very poor production, right? 1% is usable. Wow. 99% waste or heat in this tube head, right? So we have our cathode, we have our tungsten. The tungsten's going to heat up. So as a technician or a veterinary nurse, when I hit my weak dub it the term rotor. We hit our rotor and then we're boiling off electrons. So we're heating up that tungsten filament, we're boiling off electrons. The quantity of electrons is based on my area of interest. So if I need to go through an elephant, I'm going to have a higher quantity than if I'm going to go through a goldfish. Oh. So we base that quantity. As a veterinary nurse or a technician, we learn how to utilize the machine's technique chart that tells us you should set it for this quantity based on this area of interest. The more dense, the more quantity we need. So we'll boil off our electrons based off of our area of interest. Then those electrons are naturally attracted to our anode, so because it's a positive charge. Mm -hmm. Again, we use that metal tungsten because when they hit that target, that tungsten target, we can create damage to our tube head. And our tube head's kind of like our engine to our car. Okay. Without a tube head, we have no x-rays. Without an engine, you're not getting to work, right? And so we try to protect as much as we can, so we, we make that metal out of tungsten. And we also sometimes rotate it so it's not hitting the same spot over and over again because that current that negative charge to positive charge that force is kind of determined on the depth of our area of interest so if I want to go through something and have to penetrate more I'm gonna need more force than if I penetrate something that's really small and so we have two um, controls we have a kvp which is our kilovolt peak power which is just our penetration right okay. and then we have our mas which are milliamperage seconds which is the seconds in which we release the quantity of x-rays and so that quantity of electrons that i boiled off are going to be converted and so it just in very brief physics physics is not my forte but when we interact electrons you know they're coming over and they hit that target we're going to just kind of push off energy so k nodes and n nodes kind of change spots in that you know electron and then we are going to get x-rays everything else is waste 
So okay. we just use that 1%. And then wow. we try to angle our tungsten, so our targets, so that they come out of the beryllium window. It's all enclosed in glass and lead. And then we hit it on a collimator. And so that collimator is the electrical component of a flashlight. And so that kind of allows our technicians and our veterinary nurses, our DVMs if they're working, or MDs if they're doing it, um, kind of to see what their field of view would be like with, mm -hmm. by allowing that light to come on. And so when your light bulb goes out in the middle of the case, you're kind of guessing. And it, yeah. it's very prehistoric to us because we're so used to having that light bulb of like, this is my area of interest. This yeah. is what I'm going to hit. And as a profession, we have taken it upon us of lower dose for us, lower dose mm -hmm. for the patient. So we don't want to you know, shoot the whole cat just because we can, we want to dub it down to just the area of interest we want so that we lower the dose for the patient and it's safer for them because we don't need to expose their entire body. We maybe just need to see the thorax if we're looking at the heart or the lungs. Perhaps we're checking for a pneumonia, you know, just the abdomen. If we're looking, kitty cats, our puppies, they like to eat things they shouldn't. So if we're looking for a foreign body. Unfortunately, our senior pets, we often are looking for cancer or metastasis so cells that shouldn't be there mm -hmm. um, or even just just, you know, why are they not feeling well, you know? So are we just kind of doing a fishing escapade? Sometimes we are. What's the, two questions come on. One, um, what's the thing they put behind on the other side then? I know even a dentist yeah. puts something where they're hitting the target. Yeah. yeah. And then if I'm in the chest x-ray, there's always something yeah. backed up to you. What is that is my first question. Okay. It, I'll ask the next one. Okay, so that's your recording surface. So we shoot x-rays from the tube head, but we always have to have some way to record it, right? Because x-rays are invisible. So we don't see them. We don't see those opacities or densities unless we have a way to record it. Originally, we recorded that on radiographic film. Mm -hmm. So those were silver halide crystals. You had little film that you could hold up and it you know, had to be processed in a dip tank in modern medicine, an automatic processor. It went through a developer to a fixer to water bath and then we had a, a dryer, we call it the hair dryer on it. So then it's tangible and we can touch it, right? Yeah. So when we use the slang x-ray, you had an x-ray taken. Yes, thousands of x-rays pass through your body, but you actually produced a radiograph as your final product. And then when digital came in, it became a computerized um, cassette. So a computerized radiography was kind of the step up from film and screen. So we replaced our silver halide crystals with um, phosphor crystals, which were reusable and reset by white light. So they got lasered. So we could reuse them thousands of times instead of a one and done. So then we could take that um, phosphor crystal cassette, put it inside a big laser reader, it would read it with blue light and then flash it with red light so it's reset to hold energy again and convert it to an electrical signal and then we have it on our computer and then we can exchange it, view it, you know, you can see it on a laptop, you can see it on your phone. That kind of happened um, way back in the 70s, surprisingly. It's been around for quite some time. Wow. And then we went to direct radiography, which there are two types but in essence, um, we replaced those phosphor crystals with TFT panels, so your thin um, transistors, and those just convert it immediately from x-ray energy to electrical signal. So okay. it used to be wired, now it's wireless, um, but that's how we get the um, actual x-ray onto a computer screen, or what we call a radiograph to be proper. Yeah. The thing like, I'm biting on at the dentist yeah. is that... Yeah, so it's typically that. it's a phosphor screen. If okay. it's really hard and it's 
sometimes wired um, dentist is usually wired mm -hmm. um, wireless is more for our bigger panels but they do have the wireless ones out there now mm -hmm. it's kind of up and coming with the lithium batteries um, oh, yeah, yeah so if you're biting on something and it has a cord on it, then it's probably DR or the digital radiography. Okay. If you're biting on something and she takes it away and kind of runs it through a laser reader, then that's your CR or your computing. Um. Yeah. So when you get a chest x-ray and there's something on your back, yeah. that's just a, a stand to hold it. And inside of that is either a digital panel or a computerized panel. Way back when it would be a cassette with a piece of film. And that mm -hmm. film is light sensitive to everything. So room light, and so that's why it was in a cassette to one, protect it from pressure, because it's sensitive to pressure too, but two, to protect it from light, so all sorts of light. Huh. Well, the ones that you get, they're like variable though. Um, are the ones that like the doctor's office stuff, are they also variable intensity? Because um, yours, it, it sounds like it's more variable because the different size right. and stuff. If you're doing a cat, you're not gonna hit it the right. same amount of energy as you are a cow depending on what your focus is. So your dentist would have a low output machine. Mm -hmm. And then if you went to, perhaps you twisted your ankle and you went to urgent care, they'd have a high output machine. So more of a stationary kind of overhead machine. Um, low output is something that's either like on the wall or mobile where you can kind of hold it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And those low output, just know that the area of interest isn't very dense. So they don't need that high power. So they're licensed for a low output machine. And then like an ER or an urgent care, mm -hmm. even sometimes sports medicine has x-ray um, technicians within it. They probably have the high output machine because their varying, you know, body densities right. or areas of interest will change. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's all chart for that. Yeah, there's a chart for that. <laughs> it goes by machine. So okay. depending on the brand oh. of your machine, it will change. So it's not a universal chart. Okay. okay. Yeah. But, and so do you have to calculate not only for like the part, like a cow, I'm thinking a cow's huge. Yes. But so do you have to calculate if versus where you're going on the cow, yep. or in the size of the cow, both yep. and all And the that? distance I can get from my recording surface too. So okay. inverse square law comes into play that they're inversely proportionally related, right? And so if I maintain my distance to use my extras at their peak energy, then I have to follow my chart, right? So typically in, with a, like a low output machine and a distal extremity, so kind of like the limbs, so whether they're thoracic limbs, shoulder below, or pelvic limbs, you know, pelvis below down to the toes, I maintain a distance of 26 to 32 inches from my recording surface, and then I'm using them at their peak energy. But if I'm working maybe more with the, the torso, thorax and abdomen, um, then I'm going to maintain with my high output machine a distance of 36 to 42 inches. Now, if I, for some reason, couldn't get close to this cow, maybe it was a wild bull and he wasn't tame, and I needed to be further away, I need four times the quantity of x-rays oh. to actually reach my recording surface to still get diagnostic quality. Oppositely, if I can get really close but not far away because perhaps there's a wall in the way so that maybe they're in a squeeze chute and I can't get back far enough. So if I have my distance, I need one quarter the quantity of x-rays. So x-rays are very unique in their energy bundles and we want to use them at their peak energy to get the best diagnosis for the patient. Oh, different. really cool. Different, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea how, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought 
of yes. how variable they would need to be. Yeah. Yes, and artifacts come into play there too. So if your recording surface isn't right against your area of interest, then we get some magnification. So we call that object film distance. If your object film distance is high, we get magnification. So you can visualize that with a flashlight. Have you ever made flashlight puppets? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. in camp or something? Yes. When your hand's really close to the flashlight, it's like a big monster hand, mm -hmm. right? But actually the flashlight only hits a portion of your hand. Yeah. When it's really far away, your hand looks itty bitty, right? Yeah. But it's hitting, the light's hitting all of your hand. And so it's kind of the same way there is that if our area of interest isn't directly on our recording surface, our x-rays kind of get a little lost. So we get a little bit of a lighter image and we call that underexposed. You can think of it as an undercooked pizza. Oh. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when we are, you know, that distance, we get some magnification. So we kind of get some blurriness on the edges, which could make for a hard diagnosis for the doctor to read the radiograph then, because we want nice crisp lines. Yeah. Now is to read the radiograph, um, did that take a special certification too, to be able to interpret them? Yeah, so interpreting x-rays is a doctor responsibility. So a doctor has okay. to order an x-ray. So just like a prescription, mm -hmm. they have to order it. And the doctor is the only one who can make an x-ray interpretation. So the final reading of the x-ray. Uh, My guess is though, probably if you take enough x-rays, on your own, you might be able to. You, is that you have true? Some like, hits. you have some, yes. yeah. You have some ideas, but a legally, uh, a yeah. doctor has to be the one to interpret the X-ray. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that is often why, um, if you 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 had children, so right. when you were pregnant, that technician who was scanning you often did not state whether you were having a male or a female, because okay. that is a diagnosis, right? Okay. They were very careful, and if something was abnormal, hopefully you didn't have any of that risk, but if there was a risk, they just do the recording. So they cannot, you know, tell you like, oh, that's abnormal, or that arm's oh. too small, or the baby's yeah. measuring, you know, any of that. So yeah. that is a diagnosis. So that is a doctor responsibility. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Huh. Different. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. I want to go back to the, do you, have you actually x-rayed a goldfish? Yes. Really? Yeah. We do it in lab every year. Yeah. That's, I don't know why that's A goldfish? Funny. A that's goldfish and case. koi fish. Koi fish can be, you know, up to hundreds of thousands of dollars in value. Um, what? A yeah. fish? A fish. <laughs> yeah, a koi. You know, like yeah. the Japanese goldfish. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We radiograph them all the time. So um, they swallow too much air and there's they can have swim bladder problems, which is what creates their buoyancy. So if you've ever okay. seen a goldfish kind of float on its side or maybe it's up too high, um, they can get gas in their intestines or their swim bladder can have, you know, a defect. And so when we're radiographing them, we're looking for GI issues and or swim bladder issues. And so we can um, radiograph them within a small little tub of water or oftentimes we'll take them and put them in Ziploc bags and radiograph them. If they're big koi fish, we'll take them out of it and put them on um, a plastic drape and you just kind of drizzle some water on them, radiograph them really quick and put them back in. Yeah. I wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why that. Yeah, I know. It yeah, does. I would it's never get funny. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I didn't expect that. Yeah. Yep. I've missed the whole thing. Yeah, she, she said she said whether we're x-raying an elephant or a goldfish. A, a goldfish. Yeah. And I thought, wait a minute. I, <laughs> I guess I was obsessed yep. trying to figure out how to x-ray an elephant. An elephant. Mean, but we don't do the whole body at once. Remember, we come down to just one yeah. area of interest. You know, So I'm not going to do you know the trunk all the way to the tail and an, and an elephant unless I'm taking multiple pieces of a puzzle. And often we do get a puzzle. So if we have a huge Great Dane, um, I can only record as big as my recording surface. So 
the biggest one we have is a 14 by 17. Sometimes there's an 8 by 10. But sometimes a 14 by 17 doesn't fit an entire Great Dane's thorax or chest yeah. cavity in there, right? So I have to go from the manubrium to the, you know, cranial portion or the top of the mm -hmm. sternum to my... L1, so my first lumbar vertebrae. So T13 L1 is the attachment of the last rib. And so I need to get that entire cavity in there. So sometimes I do have to do, you know, pieces. So maybe my DVM will get a three piece as one. So they have to piece okay. the puzzle back together. Or sometimes we'll do quadrants. So four, we overlap as much as we can in the middle. So they have to put four. So oftentimes you'll see your radiologist or your DVMs or your MDs with multiple screens. Mm -hmm. It's because they're looking at different parts all together. Now, when we go to the CT scanner, so when we're, you know, going around the patient, we're getting slices, they can compress those slices and change them. And we can get big slices, little slices, depending on our area of interest. And then it's a little bit easier for them in interpretation. They get a lot more information, but they're not just getting that one dimensional view of the body. So whenever we're doing a diagnostic case, we always do two orthogonal views. So that's 90 degrees from each other. And the reason is being is that we could miss something when the things are superimposing when organs, I shouldn't say things, when body parts are superimposing, right? Yeah. So when they're superimposing, they're like the two pieces of the grilled cheese sandwich, right? You have your cheese in the middle, you have your bread and your bread, and you want it to be perfectly square. And when you flip it, you want it to stay that way. Mm -hmm. But when I'm looking down on it in like an aerial thing, I only see one piece of bread, right? Oh, yeah. And so that happens when I lay my patient in lateral recumbency or on their side. I only see it from that aerial viewpoint, right? Mm -hmm. So then I do 90 degrees from that. So I'll flip them up on their back and then we'll do what is considered a ventral dorsal view. And now I'm seeing them in a different light. I'm still trying to keep my sandwich together, but I'm flipping it up on its side. And now I see two pieces of bread and cheese in the middle. So we're getting two views. And sometimes wow. we'll do a rotisserie and we'll do the other lateral too, so that we can see, see different parts of the body. And so the rotisserie comes into play, especially with the thorax, because yeah. our lungs collapse with gravity. So if I lay my patient on their right side, I'm actually looking at their left lung lobe because their right lung lobe is down and collapsed. So we call that lung atelectasy. When we flip them on their back, we're seeing both lung lobes. And then when we flip them to the other side, now they're on their left side, the left lung is collapsed, but I'm looking at the right lung oh, wow. up here. Yeah. And so that changes the diagnosis for my doctor of which lung they're looking at. And to do a thorough case, a lot of times now we're doing three views instead of just the two orthogonal views. So if I sleep on my side, is one of my yep. lungs not? Yep, you get lung atelectasy. Yep, because gravity pushes it down, all your body weight's down on there, so you're dependent on your top lung. Really? Yeah. I do that. But it's, it's no, quickly yeah. reversible unless you have some sort of disease or problem, um, but it's quickly reversible. Yeah. Yep. So they always say, I don't know if you've ever been through a sleep study, that the safest place to sleep is, you know, on your back dorsally, and you're supposed to put your hands, like, up above you. I, w I would never be able to sleep this way, but that's because you get the most lung function that way. Yeah. Really? Yes. I, oh, like, like, I feel like I've learned so much. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. kind of blows me away. I'm going to be honest. Just like <laughs> yeah, like, you're going you're gonna to be cautious the way you're sleeping. Today. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I, like, I, not going to be thinking about, about it all day, let alone at night. You know, am I crushing my lungs? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Try to Thanks. Like, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Try, try to sleep on your back tonight with your hands like across your chest. It's really weird to me. I kind of feel like a vampire in a coffin. Though. I was gonna say you're kind of like, <laughs> like a mummy. Or Very Halloween-like, like, right? Yeah. Um, hey, this has, this has been fun yes. and very enlightening. 
and uh, now I'm going to wonder how I'm going to sleep tonight. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. So thanks for totally messing that up. <laughs> There'll be several minutes there I won't be sleeping now because I'll be wondering if I'm crushing along or not. I'd like to see. Anyway, <laughs> I'd like to see. <laughs> and so, but uh, thank you. Yeah, this thank is, you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome to learn about it. these things. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, thanks for allowing me to share. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!